you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 17. God did not rest on the seventh day due to weariness, rather establishing the pattern for man's work cycle. The first thing that strikes us about man's creation is the fact that God got his hands dirty in the process. All other aspects of creation, from the advent of light through the higher forms of animals, were created by God's verbal command. Here alone is the one and only element that mankind shares in common with the rest of creation. We were created from the dust of the ground, just as were the animals and plants. God planted a garden. This is not some special secondary act of creation as some have supposed. God planted a special garden so that his greatest creation, that is man, might have a special place to live and work. Another remarkable demonstration of the generous and tender love of God for his creation was that it was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life, verse 9, appears to have been a unique tree one of a kind that God had planted near the center of Eden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like the tree of life, did not possess any magical properties capable of bestowing knowledge on Adam. It served merely in a symbolic capacity to provide Adam with a tangible test of obedience. God's original creation included an abundance of freedom pleasure, and satisfaction. In fact, nothing whatsoever was off limits or forbidden, with one small exception, and man was free to do whatever he pleased. But it is, it is significant that God issued this stipulation, the first negative command in all of creation, to man. God told no other creature to refrain from anything. This is yet another element being created in God's image, the capacity to understand from right, from right and wrong and to make moral decisions. Note that Eve had not yet been created. The responsibility for obeying or disobeying the commandment fell on the shoulders of Adam alone, not Adam and Eve together. It was such a small stipulation. Eat from every tree in the garden. Eat to your heart's content. Enjoy every aspect of my creation with nothing forbidden except this one small thing. Don't eat from this one tree. Obedience to God could not have been any easier. However, right from the beginning, mankind could not obey even this one small command of God. We'll begin reading at Genesis chapter 2 at verse 1. This is God's word. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made, heaven, made earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. 
And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the, was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the, is the Pashan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilar, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amen. Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll begin reading at verses 16 through 21. In verse 16 of this text, Peter links his message with that of the other apostles to affirm that they all preach the same message. When Peter makes reference to myths, it is always used in the New Testament in a negative sense and in contrast to the truth of the gospel, 1 Timothy 1.4. Peter, along with James and John, were present at Christ's Transfiguration, Matthew 17. The eyewitness testimony of the apostles to the Transfiguration establishes the truth of Peter's message in general, and in particular provides the historical basis for the, for the apostolic expectation, expectation of the second coming. The Transfiguration was understood by the apostles to have been a brief anticipation of the divine glory with which Christ will return to earth. Matthew 16, 27 through 17, 8. Majestic glory mentioned in verse 17 is reference to the glory cloud to the Mount of Transfiguration from which God spoke to Peter, James, and John. It was also an indirect way typical of Jewish speech of referring to God himself in order to avoid any possible misuse of the sacred name of God. The prophetic word mentioned in verse 19 refers not just to the Old Testament major and minor prophets, but to the entire Old Testament. Peter's point in verse 21 is not so much about how to interpret scripture, but rather how scripture originated and what its source was. The false prophets untied and loosed their own ideas, but no part of God's revelation was unveiled or revealed from a human source or out of the prophet's unaided understanding. As scripture is not of human origin, neither is it a result of human will. The emphasis in the phrase is that no part of scripture was ever at any time produced because people wanted it so. Scripture is not the product of human effort. We'll begin reading at 2 Peter chapter 1 at verse 16. This is God's word. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, 
This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as, as a lamp shining in a dark place, until, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in the hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. You will find on the back of today's bulletin a, a rather complete outline listing what I trust will be all of the scriptural references I will refer to. Uh, I think if nothing else, I would characterize this message as one that's going to be pointing directly at the importance of assurance. Uh, I think it's going to be a bit of a theme in the coming months at least. Uh, we've reached the place in our study of 1 Corinthians where the doctrine of the resurrection is first and foremost and we'll be spending a number of weeks in this remarkable chapter. Uh, let me begin by reading through the first 11 verses with, with, a, with a few comments. Paul writes that now I would remind you, brothers, brethren, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved if you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. Now, everything in the scriptures is important. But some things are more important than other things. And of first importance is what Paul delivered to them. We'll be spending our time with that today. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, the author of life itself, the declarer of light. And as the declarer of light initiated creation, the declaration of the light, of the knowledge of the glorious Son of God in our hearts initiates our regeneration, our salvation. We pray, Lord, for the assurance that comes from knowing you and knowing Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We pray, Lord, as we, as we begin this study of this miraculous chapter, that the reality of the gospel will so permeate our thinking that we'll be drawn to it in such a way that our assurance, our comfort, our absolute confidence in our walk with thee will be strengthened, will mature, and will be evident to those that know us best and evident to those who so need to know it as well. Use this time 
for the growing of your church as you grow your people and extend your kingdom. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now the scriptures, brethren, with some regularity, call upon us to examine ourselves. Probably most specifically in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Paul writes to those Corinthians, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Can can there be anything more important than that? He says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourself? Is Jesus Christ truly in you? And of course, he's asking that in such a way, and the Greek's really good about this. He anticipates a positive response. He's not asking you, hey, prove you're saved. He's saying, look at yourself and and reassure yourself from the things that you find within that you are a believer. And of course, that does cut both ways. Because what we all, if we're honest with ourselves, most desire is the assurance the absolute rock-solid assurance that we truly are people who will live in the presence of God in heaven forever. So the question is, how can we be sure of that? How, How can you be sure of that? How can anyone be sure of that? I'd like to begin with an illustration from the life of a minister, from the journals actually of a minister, a 34-year-old minister in the Church of England. He'd been burdened for some time about that very issue. Uh, He sought assurance. He was always trying to, how can I be sure that I've satisfied God's righteous demands so I'll be accepted into heaven? In fact, in his journal, he wrote this. He says, "I, I thought of myself in those days as a creature of a single day passing through life like an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit. I'm come from God, and I'm returning to God. I'm just hovering hovering over this great gulf until just a few moments from now, I'm no more seen, meaning his life was over. I'll drop into an unchangeable eternity. And I just want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How can I land on that happy shore? God himself has actually condescended to teach me the way. For that's the reason he came from heaven. He's written it down in a book. So give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Now the journal that that's found in is the journal of John Wesley, the brother of Charles Wesley. When Brother Scott and I were down at the GA in St. Simon's Island in Georgia, where it, uh, I think it's a Methodist, I think it would be a Methodist, I guess, conference center down there, and it was a lovely gathering. And there was a little building just as you drove in, and it was the, the Wesley Museum. And you go in there, and there's all kinds of Wesley stuff. Well, you know, we're not Wesleyans or anything, but we did wander through the place, and in retrospect, I kind of wish we spent a little more time and taking a little more pictures because it's a pretty fascinating story of their ministry in America. Uh, but I digress a bit. Those are the words that John Wesley wrote after observing the death of many, many Methodists. So he wrote it much later, reflecting upon his early life. And what he said about the death of those many, many Methodists is that our people die well. Well, you do die well when you know where you're going. I can assure you, Brian Russell, when he dies, will die well. Previously, of course, as an Anglican minister, he had no assurance at all he could offer anybody assurance. And so he'd witnessed hundreds, if not thousands of people who did not die well. Now, what do we know about John Wesley? Well, he and his brother Charles were born into an Anglican family. His father, Samuel, was an Anglican priest, a minister in that that established church. His mother was named Susanna. There were 19 children in the home. It was a busy place. He was taught, they were all taught religion and morals very faithfully. 
He attended Oxford University. He was a fine scholar. He was ordained very young into the Anglican ministry. While he was at Oxford, he joined a society, not a church as we learned in the previous hour, uh, a society of brethren who studied the Bible together and prayed together. Uh, in fact, you had to take a vow to join that particular society. You had to take a vow that said you would lead a holy life, that you would take communion once a week, that you would pray every day, that you would visit the prisons and the poorhouses regularly, and you would spend three hours every afternoon studying the Bible or other devotional material. What do you suppose other students thought about that? Well, they called that group the Holy Club, and they didn't mean it favorably. They were mocking it. Well, after graduation, John Wesley sailed to the British colony of Georgia. He was going to be a chaplain to Governor Oglethorpe, and he was going to pastor a small Anglican church there. It turned out to be a complete failure. Uh, he had courted a young lady there, uh, push come to shove, she married another man. Then he decided it would be a really good thing in this little Anglican church to impose the discipline of the Holy Club on the congregation. He was almost immediately fired. So he's very bitter. He's returning to England. On May 24th of 1738, he had an experience that changed everything. He describes it in his journal thusly. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting at Aldersgate Street, where there was an individual and he was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. He's not reading Romans. <laughs> He's reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ Jesus, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I actually did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even my sins. And he'd saved me from the law of sin and the law of death. Well, actually, what seems to have happened, what's obviously happened there, is the Spirit of God ministered to him from the book of God. And what he came to understand happened was he understood for the very first time the gospel. And that's the subject of our text this morning. In fact, if you look at verses 1 and verse 11, something will be obvious. Verse 1, I'm reminding you of the gospel. That's the gospel I preached to you that you received and in which you stand. And then jumping down to verse 11, he, we're still talking about the same subject here. It didn't, Paul says it didn't make any difference whether it was me or any of the other people I've mentioned here. That's exactly the same thing we preached. And that's exactly the same thing that you believed. So what Paul is saying there is that not only did I, but the entire apostolic company, as we travel around the Roman world in the first century, we all talked about certain events in exactly the same way. That Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. That he was actually buried in the ground, in the tomb. On the third day, he actually arose from the dead. But even that was according to the scriptures. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, we all saw him. We saw him in person. And what we're telling you is always the same. Well, what is it? They're telling them. We're going to get to that. Second, what he's telling them there in verse 11 is that's exactly what all of you Corinthians believe too. And if you're a believer today, this is what you believe. Well, what is it? Well, chronologically, we read about that in verses 1 and 2. You, as those things were preached to you, verse 1 says you accepted them as being true. 
Jesus Christ really die, did die according to the scriptures, and he was buried. You also believed it. That's the end of verse 2. You placed your confidence in it. And lastly, again going back to verse 1, that's what you're standing and you're continuing there. You're not going to be shaken by anything from that truth. You believe he died according to the scriptures. You believe he was buried. You believe he rose physically from the dead because he was actually seen by reliable witnesses. All the apostles preached it. The Corinthians received it, believed it, were standing on it. Well, what's the it? The it's the gospel. The good news. Now here's the point. The gospel is not some vague concept. It is something very, very definite. It's not undefined. It's not a moving picture. It's not subjective. It's not, it's not subject to your individual notions of how nice you would wish it would kind of be this way or that way. It is objective. It is very clearly definable. There are certain events happen to a certain person. And he was uniquely qualified for those events to have significance of eternal value. In fact, a Christian must be in a place where he can say the gospel is this, and it is not that. Because there's a lot of stuff, a lot of things being called the gospel today that are not this. They're a mixture of this and that. That's about as animated as you ever see me get. I understand that. But that's really important. You ought to be able to set your mind on certain facts that are involved in the gospel so that you absolutely know them. And you take that as your position on the gospel. Now, let's consider the man who actually wrote those words to the Corinthians. And that man, of course, is Paul that we've come to know over the last couple of years as the pattern believer. He's also kind of a minister. He's kind of a minister in a particular group of believers who are very, very serious about what they believe. He's a Pharisee. But he describes himself elsewhere as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, the strict of the strictest. All of his life, he was doing everything he possibly could to keep the law, to do enough, to be righteous in the eyes of a holy God. But something was wrong. His conscience wouldn't give him peace. And he, it really seems to have enraged him that he couldn't satisfy it. So he was continually doubling down, doing more, and getting more and more frustrated in the process. Finally, as we'll consider this evening, I mean, I do invite you to come back for the appearances because they, they are relevant to where this is going. He was gloriously converted by an act of God that he could not possibly have foreseen. Incidentally, that's why he calls it an untimely new birth. No one was less likely to be converted, which is why we don't give up on those who seem to have utterly rejected the truth until there is no hope. He was converted in such a way that afterwards he could write things like this. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I don't know what you think about it. I don't really care what you think about it. I am not ashamed of it. Why not? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it. It doesn't make a difference whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's what he's writing here. It's God's very own powerful ability to save anyone on the basis of their faith alone, including people who don't have any righteousness whatsoever, because no one does. Now, that's a position that's absolutely unacceptable to any Pharisee. Pharisees didn't believe God saved people on the basis of belief alone. Yes, there were certain things you had to believe. There is one God, Jehovah. He's, a covenant. He's in covenant with his people, and we're his people. But to be right with him, we have to keep the law 
to every jot and tittle of it. Paul's absolutely abandoned that viewpoint. When he came to understand the gospel, he wasn't embarrassed to say that. No, that is not the gospel. This is the gospel. He wasn't ashamed to proclaim it. And he proclaimed it at continuing cost to his own health, his own welfare, his own reputation, his very life. Brethren, you can be assured of your salvation on the basis of your faith alone, completely apart from the works of your life. Now, I'm not going to drift off into an Arminian liberty way you want to. Grace, the more you sin, the more grace God gives. Just try it as a believer. Actually, don't try it. It would be a, a very dangerous thing. How can that be? How can I have assurance based upon my faith alone that I'm going to heaven? Well, it's in the gospel. The gospel is God's powerful ability to save people who don't have any righteousness, earned or otherwise. It, it, God, God opens the door of faith to them. That's the Acts 14, 27 on your outline. He opens the door to faith. He grants them the faith that they need. And it's that faith alone that saves them. Incidentally, as they come to life, they see all things about their lives that need to be changed that they've offended the Lord with. And so he grants them repentance, which they freely exercise. It's a remarkable thing. See, we think we wump up faith and we wump up repentance, and the more of that we do, the more credit we get. It doesn't work that way at all. God grants us faith and repentance. So it's, it's imperative to your assurance of the state of your soul for all eternity that you know exactly what the gospel is. Now, the word gospel means little more than really good news. It's better news than you know. It's the kind of thing that if you know it, it gets a hold of you. And your viewpoint, your viewpoint pretty quickly becomes something akin to, you know, I need to tell people about this because everybody needs to know about this. Now, you don't have to live too long in Christian America before you realize it doesn't go very well. In fact, they don't want to hear it. Well, what does that tell you? It doesn't tell you there's something wrong with the gospel. It tells you there's something wrong with people. Because in, in your mind, once this gets a hold of you, as you tell people this good news, if they would just come to fully understand it, their response would be, are you kidding me? That's all that's required of me? All I, all I really have to do is put my faith and confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, on the gift of God, of his son? Is that all that's required? That's the greatest message ever heard. But of course, if God doesn't do something, that doesn't happen. And in reality, God doesn't. Many, many times. See, the Bible calls that good message, certain things, the gospel, the good message. It, it's very definable. Now look at verses 3 through 5 and let's, let's define it. Everything said in verses 3 through 5 concerns one person. It is the Messiah. And the word Messiah, Mashiach, means the anointed one. Everything there. The Messiah died. The Messiah was buried. The Messiah was raised. The Messiah appeared. The gospel is all about the Messiah. The gospel is not about you. Now, we've all seen the Roman road, which always starts with what a pickle you're in. Because nobody's righteous, not one, and there's nothing you can do about it, and the wage of sin's death. I'm not arguing against the Roman road. I'm not arguing against God's spirit for spiritual laws or the fact that God has a great and glorious plan for your life. All those are kind of true. They are true. But the gospel is not about you. The gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And not only... Did he die, was buried, was raised? And those appearances, everything there was according to the scriptures. 
Well, what do the scriptures have to say? We have four books in our New Testament that are called the Gospels. Turn to the second one, Mark 1. Look at the very first verse. This is the beginning of the good news, I'm sorry, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What's the gospel about? What's the gospel of Mark about? It's about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the subject. It's not about you. It's not about what you're going to decide. It's not about what you're going to do. It's all about Christ. Turn to the first, first chapter of Acts. Not a gospel, but a book written by one of the gospel authors, written by Luke. In fact, Luke refers back to his gospel in Acts 1.1. He says, in the first book, that would be the gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So what was Luke about? Luke was about Jesus, the Messiah. The good news is all about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And back to our text, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the gospel is centered on one person. All four gospels focus upon that one person. And this is really important. The more you understand all that Jesus did and taught in those four books, the better you'll understand the gospel. And when you get to the end of each of those four books, they all end the same way. They all end with his death, and then his burial, and then his resurrection, and then appearances after. They all climax at the, at the very points which Paul focuses upon as being the gospel. And the great redemptive act, among all the things that the Messiah taught and all the things the Messiah did, the forgiveness-providing event that makes the gospel such wonderful news is the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the critical node that the person, Jesus Christ, died for our sins. And when he did that, it was according to the scriptures. The good news is not just that Jesus Christ died, but that he died a certain way and that he died for a certain reason. Okay, so you're sharing with a friend or somebody happens to sit down beside you in some, some situation and eventually you kind of get around to some Christian talk and you happen to ask, why did Jesus die? Of course, if you're in the South, if you're in the Bible Belt, everybody's going to have an answer, well, he died for us. And in a sense, that is true. I guess kind of depending on who the us is and all that, but that's an insufficient answer. There, there's so, there's, it's, it's a lot more important that you get a little bit below that answer. Yes, he did die for us, but it was a certain kind of death. Our passage here tells us very specifically he died for sins. It tells us it was a death for our sins. And it tells us it was a scriptural death. He died for sins. He died for our sins. And it was a scriptural death. Let's take those in order. It was a death for sins. The theologians use all kinds of words for it. I'm going to try to be as simple as I possibly can. It is a penal death. It's spelled on the outline. All right. He paid the penalty. He, he paid the price that a guilty person pays for what they've done. Now, our culture and most of the cultures of the world these days don't believe in penal punishment. It believes in remedial punishment. 
Like we're going to help you get over this and help everybody else get over this and somehow rehabilitate you back in society. In fact, in most parts of the world, though they kill people right and left, like we do, capital punishment is abolished. The most notorious killers of America, if they were picked up and arrested somewhere in Europe, could not be ex extradited to America because under the European Union concept of human rights, we're barbarians. We have to agree under no circumstance will we execute the person to get them to ex extradite them to us. That's just the way we are these days. Now, the Bible does believe in penal punishment. The Bible teaches that sin is not remedial, not in need of remedial punishment. There's a penal punishment for sin. Capital punishment begins to be based upon Genesis 2, the passage Brother Walt read. He said, in the day you eat of that tree, you're going to die. Literally, it says, dying you will die. And it did start that day when their eyes were opened. Now, yes, Genesis 5 tells us Adam died 900 years later. Okay, so 900 years passed, but he died. In fact, you work your way down through Genesis 5, and you'll find there's a lot of people that lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And then they died. All of them died. All but Enoch. The exception proves the rule. Men die. Men die. God gave government. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. The fact that we don't do it doesn't change God's mind. Hmm? The government is given by God. Romans 13, 14. And the government does not bear the sword in vain. Romans 13, 4. God says the soul that sins, it shall die. How much sin does it take to warrant the death penalty? Well, it says if you're going to keep the law, you're going to have to keep it all. So if you, don't, if you fail on any little thing, any little thing. What is it that Adam did that was so bad? Man only did it eat something. Yeah, there's all kinds of circumstances. There's a serpent, there's Satan, there's his wife, there's expectations. But all he did was eat something. How serious could that be? Well, he died. It was that serious. What's so serious about it? Because what he did is he disobeyed God. God said, don't do it. He says, I'm going to do it. And he did it. Death penalty. You know that holds for everything? Everything? In fact, Romans 5 tells us, tells us that sin came into the world through one man. That Adam guy. You think you'd do any better? I can assure you, you wouldn't have. And death passed to all mankind through that sin. So that death spread to all men because now we're all sinners. Not only are we sinners, we're born sinners with a sin nature, but then we promptly start sinning. And we can't help it. In Romans 6, 23, just to jump into the Roman road there, you know what we earn with that sin? We earn the penalty. We earn the penalty. We earn death. The wages of sin is death. That death is described in Revelation 20, 14 as the second death. It's the lake of fire. This is serious business. To escape that, to avoid that, to not get what you deserve, you have to receive a free gift. What? That's all there is to it. You have to receive a free gift. A gospel. The gospel. And the gospel is a person. It is an individual. It's the Son of God. It's the Son of God who died 
for sins. But whose sins did he die for? He died for our sins. He died for our sins. That's, that's the word in your text. Jesus Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. He, he paid the penalty for our sins. But not only did he die that penal death, he died a substitutionary death. He died so you don't die that death. He died as a substitute for you in your place. He accepted the penalty, the death penalty that was yours, that is ours. And because he's the only person who ever walked upon the face of the earth who never committed a sin and didn't possess a sin nature, I mean, so much so that even Judas, who walked around with him for three years, said, I betrayed absolutely innocent blood. And Pontius Pilate said, I can find no fault whatsoever with this man. So you got the, um, uh, one close to him and the, and the authority saying, this is an innocent guy. Why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God stop the crucifixion? This is going to be one you want to think about. And I'm not sure it's on your outline. Proverbs 17, 15 says this. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. I don't know how that got left off there, but that's good. So, okay. If condemning the righteous is an abomination for the Lord and Jesus Christ is the only righteous person, why didn't God intervene? Now, the answer to that is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is on your outline. It's because God the Father, for our sake, made God the Son to be sin, even though he knew no sin. Why would he do that? So that in him, God the Son, we might, Acquire the righteousness, become the righteousness of God. See, it was a just death. Christ was guilty of sin, but not his, of ours. The sins of his people. And those sins were judged. And all the apostles preached that same truth. Peter writes in First Peter 1, 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Hebrews 9, 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, is going to appear the second time. 1 John 4, 10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be, this will be a third word here, the propitiation. For our sins. Now that word propitiation, we're going to teach more on as we go along here, but his death was propitiatory, meaning it satisfied the wrath of God against my sin and your sin. If it's not satisfied, it's still there. And to experience the wrath of God at the end of this life is to suffer the second death. God's wrath is his, is his intense anger toward our sin. God put forth Christ Jesus, Romans 3.25. God put forth Christ Jesus, the Son of God, as our propitiation through his blood. I mean, what more could he possibly have done? He, he put forth his own son by whose blood his own wrath was satisfied against our sin. 1 John 2, 2. He's the propitiation for our sins, 
but not for ours alone. I mean, that price that was paid by the death, by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross would be sufficient for the sins of the entire world if they would but believe it, if they would but receive it. You can see why it, it is a free gift offered to all. Have you, are you satisfied? Are you, are you comfortable? Are you assured that you have accepted those truths? Are you still trying to get better so that God will accept you? Are you still trying to, to do just the extra bit just to be sure? Because once you start adding works to this, it's no longer of grace. And salvation is all of grace. The question is, do you take those, those phrases in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2, that, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, he was buried, he rose again according to the scriptures, and appeared, made all these appearances to reliable witnesses who have left us this, this record, those holy men of old were moved by the Spirit of God. It's absolutely true. Is your trust and confidence in those things alone or in those things plus you being good from this day forth. Because if it's in the latter, you're not going to be. And then your trust and confidence is gone again. We must place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And then live our lives before a watching world standing on those truths. If, if, if I'm describing you, then you should have absolute assurance of where you're going to spend eternity. And if not, today is the day of salvation. I mean, today is the day to get that right. To go over those pages and say, do I believe that? Do I accept that? Am I standing on that? Is that my confidence, come what may? And anything could happen. This could be the last message you ever hear. And you may hear 100,000 more. But today is the day you heard this one. This is the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, gracious, merciful, loving, patient, infinitely good, and yet infinitely holy. Oh, what a, what a joy it is to be known by you and have you know us and knowing us forgive us. Knowing what we'd be like, knowing how we would fail, knowing how we would struggle, knowing how we would sin, you sent your son to shed his precious blood to satisfy your wrath against our sin. What a glorious gospel. What a glorious act of grace. What a wondrous thing to be drawn into the family of God by the Spirit of God. Lord, use this message you should, by the power of your Spirit to draw others to you for your glory. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.